This evening I'd like to reflect upon the third noble truth, the end of suffering, nibbana, liberation, freedom, the variety of words that are used. And in the beginning I will ask for your forbearance in appreciating that it's a, a single talk is somewhat inadequate to address this rather weighty theme. In this teaching, this path, this tradition, Nibbana is offered as being the essence, the heart, the ultimate goal of the spiritual, the meditative life. And the Buddha, speaking of it, of this, he says, this noble life we live does not have gain, honor, and renown for its benefit, or the attainment of virtue for its benefit, or the attainment of concentration for its benefit, or knowledge and vision for its benefit. But it is this unshakable deliverance of mind that is the goal of this noble life, its heartwood and its end. So what I would like to endeavor to do in some small way this evening is to begin to unpack or hopefully in some way demystify what this word nibbana is actually pointing to, what is meant by this unshakable deliverance of heart. Mercy, I think I'd like you to feel comfortable with the word nibbana. You might already feel uncomfortable. With the word nibbana, the word nibbana. To somehow naturalize this into a word that you can relate to, a possibility that you can relate to. Something that is not reserved for cloistered monks and nuns of the past, But most importantly, to feel that the third noble truth has indeed something to do with everything that you do in this practice. In truth, every hour you sit on a cushion or walk on your walking path really is in the service of discovering this unshakable deliverance of heart. Every breath you are mindful of, every moment you contemplate your body and everything a body can experience, every moment you contemplate the world of your emotions, the lovely and the difficult, every moment that you contemplate your mind and everything a mind can do is in the service of this unshakable freedom of heart. I'd like you to get a sense that every moment that you find within yourself the willingness to meet and understand suffering and its causes rather than fleeing from it, every moment that you're willing to begin again in the face of doubt and persevere in the face of the difficult, all of this too, in reality, is a training 
in liberation. It's a training in freedom, and it's a training in unshakability. Now, in speaking about nibbana, I'd like first to say a few words about goals and our relationship to goals. Now, many people, it is because of their relationship to goals that they cannot relate to even the possibility of nibbana. Now, many people, of course, have a troubled and difficult history and relationship with goals. Even the word can make some people tremble. Mm -hmm. And it can even make it hard to even listen to this talk. You know, for many people in their life, goals have been surrounded with or associated with striving and forcing and ambitiousness success and failure, and then, of course, all the judgment that comes. And in reality, of course, all of that is a terrible suffering. But what I would like to suggest, it is actually never was the goals themselves that cause suffering, that it is our identification and investment with which we surround goals and all the ensuing judgment that's been attached to goals, that causes suffering. Now, in truth, this practice, we might say, is saturated with goals. It's certainly saturated with aspirations, isn't it? Loving kindness, peace, serenity, compassion, concentration, insight, words we all use and words we certainly see are at the heart of our practice. And if they're not present in our life right now, if they're not present in our practice right now, we're aspiring to them and we're learning to cultivate the qualities of our hearts and minds that incline us towards their realization. This actually looks like goals to me. And it's part of our practice and part of our path is actually learning to hold aspiration, learning to hold intentionality, indeed even learning to hold this sense of direction and goals in a spirit of freedom, with kindness and yet with wise effort. And to always know when our aspirations are turning into something less wholesome, when they begin to cause suffering, when their investment or ambition or uh, identification has begun to creep in. So to come back to this reflection on Nibbana. Now, the Four Noble Truths describes the whole mandala of awakening. The first noble truth describes what we might say the problem. It describes the dis-ease, that there is unsatisfactoriness, there is discontent, malaise, a time struggle and pain in our lives. None of us are exempt. It is part of our shared language and vocabulary. So when does this discontent or unsatisfactoriness become a noble truth rather than just bad news 
you know, something to fix or overcome. Well, it becomes a noble truth when suffering and unsatisfactoriness are really seen to be the ground of our awakening, when they are the beginning of a journey of investigation, a path of liberating, embracing understanding. Now, the second noble truth, that there is a cause of suffering, this relentless restlessness of the heart that leads us to be locked into this ongoing tension of pursuing one thing and avoiding another in life, as trying to ease the painfulness of a sense of incompleteness or lack or something missing. Now, this second truth becomes a noble truth. When we understand that the suffering and the struggle we meet in our life is not a mystery, it's not an accident, it's not a signal of failure, it's not bad luck. But this relentless thirst and restlessness and sense of lack is something that can be understood, it can be healed, it can be liberated. And so, too, can the suffering. Now, the third noble truth described in Nibbana describes the freedom from the dis-ease, the end of the struggle, the end of suffering. It describes the awakened heart and life. Now, the fourth noble truth is actually simply the path to Nibbana, It is also what is called the stream of the Dharma, the embodiment of an awakened heart that is freed from greed and hatred and delusion. The fourth noble truth really describes a life of nobility and integrity and an embodied freedom. So what is held in the four noble truths, of course, is a map of awakening a map of liberation. Now, I I would also say that throughout the discourses and throughout the different spectrum of traditions in Buddhist teaching, there are many different maps of awakening. The Buddha spoke of a number of doorways to this unshakability. He speaks about liberating the heart through loving kindness and compassion speaks about the liberation that can be found through concentration as a base for insight, through equanimity, speaks of liberation through the doorway of understanding emptiness. So what I'd really like to focus upon this evening is just one of those maps, which is presented as in what is called the four stages of awakening. And particularly, I'd like to focus upon what is called stream entry, or in Pali, the understanding of a sotapanna. Now, first, I'd like to just explore a little bit more what this word, nibbana, is pointing towards. Now, to some extent, this word nibbana or nirvana, nirvana, is a word that has entered our cultural vocabulary to some weird in some weird ways. There is a perfume called Nirvana. 
is also a perfume called samsara. <clears throat> There's a rock group called Nirvana. And at times, Nirvana, you run across, I run across it in advertising as a word that's being used to kind of describe, you know, the best vacation ever or, you know, the best car you can buy or a fantastic meal. Now, in the Dhamma, I must say, this word is used a little bit differently. It's, it's really the heartwood of the path. Now, in Asia, in Asia, the word nirvana, nirvana is in very common usage. You know, it's really considered why anybody would practice. You know, you go to Asia and there are many monasteries or speak to many teachers there, and they couldn't imagine any other reason for a person to ever plunk themselves down on a cushion. You know, they're there to be liberated. That's it. End of story. It's really simple. Um, and it's, it's pretty common usage. You know, it's, it's like if you come to England as a tourist, you know, and you turn up in pretty much any English village and you say, oh, where's your nearest castle? They'll say, oh, you know, you go a mile down the road and you turn right and, you know, there's a castle there. It's kind of like that in Asia. If you go somewhere, monasteries, and you say, you got any soda panas around here? You know, any stream enterers, you know, one street turners? You know, they'll say, oh, yeah, you just go down the road, you know, turn right. <laughs> you know, that monastery over there. I mean, sometimes not, it's a little bit misused, but um, it's not considered really a problem or, or, you know, something out of the scope of people's realization. So how do we understand this word nibbana or nirvana? In classical language, uh, nirvana is often described through negatives. You know, words like cessation, blowing out the fire, coolness, the cessation of the outflows of greed and anger and delusion, the end of becoming, the end of suffering or going beyond. Nibbana is also described, of course, in very glowing terms. The unconditioned, the ultimate peace, unshakable freedom, the deathless, the sublime. Now, I think it is very easy for us to see Nibbana as a destination which really has nothing to do with us or our practice. You might be thinking that. Now, in one hand, of course, it is true to say that Nibbana is the end of seeking. But it is also very important to remember that Pali, the language in which these teachings were conveyed and remembered, It's very much a language of verbs and process. So in a sense, we are learning to liberate. We are freeing. We are cooling. In fact, all the time in our practice, you could say we're nibbana-ing. And really, this has everything to do with our practice right now and in every moment. If you really think about it, we're all learning moment to moment, about calming, about liberating, about seeing, 
And we're all learning really moment to moment in our practice about liberating the moment from the heat and the fire of misunderstanding and craving and aversion and fear. Now in the discourses, Nibbana or the understanding of Nibbana is described in different ways. For example, there are many stories of sudden awakenings, of sudden enlightenments. You know, for example, even the story of the Buddha beneath the Bodhi tree. You know, you, you read in the discourses all these, uh, these stories about the Buddha would give a talk and 500 people were immediately liberated. That was it. Talk about the Buddha meeting a drunk on the road, you know, and speaking a few words. It's enlightened. Nice thought. But there are also many more stories and anecdotes in the discourses which speak of Nibbana-in and liberating as a path of cultivating the wholesome and the liberating moment to moment. And Fred very much spoke to this last night when he was speaking about the mandala of the past, you know, the, the cultivation of ethics, the cultivation of calmness, the cultivation of kindness and of wisdom, all in the service of cultivating a climate of heart and mind which is really inclined towards deep and liberating understanding. You hear that the gradual process of understanding suffering, of understanding the nature of change, of understanding non-clinging, non-selfing, that liberate the moment from contractedness, from imprisonment, a process and a path of learning to develop unshakability that ends in a profound unshakability of freedom. Now, as, as Fred was referring to last night, the, three, the four pillars, Adana, Sila, Samadhi, the collected mind or the meditative path and wisdom, the perfection of these in many ways could be said to be the definition of liberation. The Buddha goes on to describe these in stages of liberation called the path of the noble ones, the the stage of the Sotapanna, the stream enterer, the Sakadagami, the once returner, the Anagami, the non-returner, and the Arahant, the fully enlightened. Now, again, we're sure these have nothing to do with us. You know, but I'd like to convince you that they do. And I'd really like to convince you that you're actually practicing to be a Sotapanna. That you're practicing for stream entry. That you're practicing for unshakable wisdom. I think one thing that's very important is to make a distinction between stages and states. You know, when we think, sometimes we think of liberation as this disembodied state, you know, you know, floating around on an enlightened cloud somewhere, you know, out of life, you know, 
the end of actually being able to function in this world, you know. It, we have a lot of weird associations, and a lot of people look at that and they say, oh, I wouldn't do that. You know, that's not for me. And often when we think of states, we think of also of experiences, you know, that have a beginning and that have an ending that come and go. But think of ter- I think to think in terms of liberating, in terms of stages, I think is very much more helpful because it really puts our own path into a different light and something that is very relatable to. For example, I w- you have all seen yourself go through different stages in this retreat. Think back to the first day. Hmm? Some stages have been gone through. But not just on this retreat. For those people, those of you who have had a longer practice, I think you, it is very often not so difficult to really mark a process of deepening and a process of awakening. And it's a process that is often marked by what is being let go of and what has become increasingly embedded and embodied in our lives. We often see a deepening of calmness, of of faith, of clarity. We often see a deepening capacity for loving kindness, for compassion. We may see in our lives, through our practice, a deepening capacity to distinguish between what causes suffering and what heals suffering, and to live our life in accord with that understanding. We may have seen increasingly in our lives and in our practice a capacity to distinguish between the wholesome and the unwholesome, and to live in the light of that understanding. And we may have seen also things begin to fall away in our life. Less greed. Less aversion. Less of a tendency to to jump so quickly to judgment. Less of a solidity in some of the emotions we experience. Less fear. In truth, the the changes we see ourselves going through in our life, through our practice, through understanding, what we are really seeing is a process and a path of liberating our hearts. Now, the stages of awakening, in truth, are simply a continuation of that journey. Now, the Sotapanna, or the stream enter, is one who has firmly entered the stream of the Dharma, the stream of wisdom. The Sotapanna, or the stream enter, is one who has entered that stream of the Dharma with total confidence and faith. And this stream of the Dharma, what I'm talking about here, is actually the Noble Eightfold Path that brings a natural dignity to life. The Noble Eightfold Path of really wise view, of wise intention, of wise speech, of wise action, of wise livelihood, of wise effort, of wise mindfulness, of wise concentration. And they have also reached this place, of a kind of sort of has reached this place of a natural authority and wisdom. Actually, they don't just embody that Eightfold Path they have reached this natural authority and wisdom 
through cultivating exactly that same Eightfold Path, training and inclining their hearts towards all that is healing, all that is calming, all that is unifying, all that is liberating. Now the stream entry, or Satipati, could arguably, arguably be said to be the most significant and transforming point of awakening. Because the stream enter or the satapana is said to be free or liberated from the first three views or obscurations that really bind us to suffering, bind us to the endless becoming and struggle. The first unwise view the stream enter has let go of is the view, uh, the, the, the belief in uh, personality, the personality view. All the ideas about ourselves that solidify and uh, yeah, make true all our ideas of self. The second obscuration, the Sotapanna or stream interest I go of, is the obscuration of skeptical doubt. And the third is the attachment, the attachment to rules and rituals. Now, no one, I think, needs to tell us that this first obscuration of personality belief or personality view is a very powerful source of discontent and suffering and sense of imprisonment in our life. I am. I am my body, and so everything that happens in my body happens to me. I am my mind, my thoughts, and so everything that happens in my mind describes who I am. I'm wonderful, I'm terrible, I'm, you know, a success, I'm a failure, I'm, you know, obsessive, all the things I can be. I am my emotions. This is one of the ways we form personality view. I'm happy, sad, I'm elated, I'm depressed, I'm anxious, I'm loving, I need, I want, I have, I don't have. I'm a success, I'm a failure. Now, we know this symphony, don't we? It's a pretty endless symphony in our life that we go through with this ongoing mantra of this is me, this belongs to me, this is who I am. This is what is called personality view. Now, to counter this struggle and the solidity of this belief, the Buddha encouraged us encouraged us to investigate this view. He encouraged us to meet all of these labels, these descriptions, these beliefs about who we are with a sense of investigation to bring into the play all the places of identification and contraction the just the question, the possibility that this is not me. This does not belong to me. This is not who I am. Just to contemplate that. It is a contemplation that is not in the service of trying to annihilate or erase the self. I think it's so important to understand that. It is in the service of uprooting wrong view. The view of self that is born of clinging and grasping. 
and the view of self, the view of who we are, that is actually bound to whatever is clung to or grasped. You cling to a thought, you become the thinker. You cling to a pain, you become the sufferer. You cling to a plan, you become the planner. You cling to your emotion, you become sad or exhilarated or hopeful is or mistrustful. Now this first insight of a stream enterer or a sotapanna is really not something esoteric or abstract or something that is impossible for us to understand or inaccessible to us in our practice. It is an understanding, I think, the emptiness of personality view. I think it's an understanding that we're often dragged to a little bit reluctantly because we can be just a little bit attached to our personality view. And it's certainly not not a suggestion that we should have no personality, because of course we do. You know, this teaching is not suggested about kind of like, uh, you know, leveling everything, you know, so we become a sort of non-entity in this world. But it is to suggest the cessation of clinging and the constructed views of who we are that are born of nothing more than clinging. And that it is the clinging and the views that are constructed that is the suffering. Now the question we're asked to think is, is like, is our personality view true? Now can any of the changing events or definitions that we experience moment to moment any of the changing events and definitions we take hold of, you know, I'm, just see it in a day. Trace the story of yourself in a single day. You know, I'm, I'm terrible, I'm wonderful, I'm getting somewhere, I'm getting nowhere, you know, I'm, I'm a success, I'm failure. Everything, does any of this ever describe the whole truth or does it just describe what we have clung to or contracted around in the moment. That's all it describes. The deep in the profound insight into the illusion of personality view created by clinging is the liberating insight of the stream enterer. They know it deeply and unshakably that there is no independent and enduring self. There is only the view. And without clinging to anything, no view of self is created. And the stream enterer actually is a person in practice who knows this unarguably and unshakably. Now again, put this in the context of your own practice. Through the attention you bring, through the questioning, the investigation you bring to all those moments that you find yourself locked into a view of who you are, through the investigation you have brought into all those moments when you say, I am, I am the sufferer, I am the planner, I am the meditator, each time that you actually learn to hold those moments just a little more lightly, and, and to bring a little bit of creative disbelief 
to see the way that the view of the moment is born of the clinging of the moment, you're actually practicing to be a Sotapanna. You're practicing to understand the understanding of a stream enter. Now, I would certainly admit that this takes quite some practice. But this understanding is something that will deepen and it will mature until it is cellular. And then that understanding of no independent abiding self-existence will transform your life. It is not just a moment of transformation. It is a process of transforming that matures. You know, in, in this teaching, there is the path and there is the fruition of the path found in all the stages of awakening. And we walk the path of that understanding. We walk the path of the stream enterer. And with practice, with deepening, there is a fruition of that path. The insight into the emptiness of personality view is perhaps the most important insight of the stream enterer. Why? Because it completely changes the perspective on all of the other obscurations. Doubt, ill will, craving, conceit, attachment. We can see them or start to see them as being habits of ignorance rather than my problems, my obstacles. They're habits of ignorance and they can be understood and there can be a very deep understanding that they are not me, they are not mine, they are not who I am. And they're held with a little bit more ease, a little bit more curiosity. They don't govern our hearts. Now certainly the insight into the emptiness of any abiding self-existence really leads to the second characteristic of the stream enterer or sotapanna, which is the cessation of skeptical doubt. Now, I'm sure, again, we all know how incredibly paralyzing and disabling this variety of doubt can be. And skeptical doubt is not speaking to the wise doubt that is really encouraged in this practice. But skeptical doubt mostly arises from personality view. Is freedom from suffering possible for me? Oh, I doubt it, you know. I'm, I'm too inadequate. I'm too fearful. My story is too big. You know, is this the right path for me? I don't know. So I kind of hang on the edge, you know. Is this the right teacher for me, the right tradition? Is this the right time for me to be practicing? I don't know. You know, we get just get plagued by doubt through our lives. Should I do this? Should I do that? What is the right decision about who I should be, what I should be committed to? Should I become enlightened, you know, or should I get married, you know? It's like, you know, the mind gets so, so full. You know, you can even see it come up in the tea line, in the line at tea time, you know, should I have Acmax or rice cakes, you know, it's like, even there we can get stuck, you know, should it be tahini or peanut butter, you know, and you see what it does to the mind, hmm? 
And those doubts, large and small, keep us wavering and they keep us uncertain and they keep us uncommitted. Now, many of these, of course, may be totally appropriate questions to be asking ourselves. But often what we see is self-doubt playing itself out on the landscape of our life, never finding an answer. We're looking, actually, for answers that are going to end suffering in a changing world that offers no certainties. We're looking often for right answers that are going to provide us some ground to stand on. And in truth, this fluid and unpredictable world of changing conditions has a genuine quality of groundlessness. To really begin to understand the emptiness of personality view actually goes a very long way to liberate us from self-doubt. And it makes life, it makes wise action more easy, more simple. Now the the faith and the confidence, because this is one of the characteristics of stream entry, is this unshakable faith and confidence. But it's not a faith or confidence that is blind or rigid It is a faith and confidence that is informed and wise. I think through our own experience, we come to know with assurance, with true confidence, what it is that leads to suffering and what leads to the end of suffering. We come to know with assurance that the path of ethics, the path of the collected and calm heart and wisdom, really only has one direction, And it only has one outcome, which is freedom. We begin to know with assurance and confidence the understanding of what causes and ends suffering in the experience of our own life. We come to know with assurance and confidence the truth of impermanence, of non-self, and of unsatisfactoriness. We know with confidence that the causes of sorrow and the causes of joy are in our own hearts. And this confidence and faith becomes unshakable. And that knowing or that coming to know that assurance and confidence, in a way it's embodied when we set our hearts upon awakening, when we are undistracted from our path, when our mind really comes to rest in the Dharma. Now, the stream enterer enters this noble eightfold path, tastes that sense of freedom, and knows that their understandings can't be denied. There comes to be a cessation of doubt, and faith has that aspect again, both of cultivation, of ripening, and of fruition. Now, initially, all of us in our practice have moments of faith. You know, sometimes we're inspired by a teaching or inspired by a glimpse of calm in our own practice or a glimpse of intimacy or depth. And we also have times when we struggle and feel a lot of disharmony. We begin to see changes in our lives. This is a big source of our confidence and faith. 
more ease, more loving kindness. We begin to see a ripening of faith and confidence in our own capacity to be free. Now these first two characteristics of the stream entry, the understanding of the emptiness of personality view, the unshakable faith and confidence, also has something to do with the third understanding of a stream enter, which is the letting go of the attachment to rites and rituals. And again, initially this can seem a strange thing. But really, this, this area of understanding is really speaking to the nature of attachment itself. And all the things that we do to ensure a safe and certain life. And perhaps we've seen this in our lives from the time when we were a child and we would have certain nighttime, bedtime rituals we would go through to make sure there were no ghosts under the bed or, you know. But we, you know, we, we keep them going through our lives, quite frankly. You know, sometimes people come on retreat and they've got their spot in the meditation hall. They're really upset if somebody else is sitting there. You know, you may have seen it that you've got your walking path. You ever found somebody on your walking path? You know, or imagine how it would be if you came in the hall and somebody was perched on your cushion. You know, we we can some you know, I, and I know this stuff goes on, and it, you know, and not making fun of it, not judging it, but it's really a really appreciating the the, the tendency of the human mind to create attachment to things being a certain way. You know, people sometimes tell me they come early to retreats so they can get the yogi job that is going to make their retreat go okay. (laughs) And then we also speak about, you know, my practice, my path, you know, my teacher versus that path versus that teacher, versus that tradition. I mean, what we see on retreat is a microcosmic view of what happens in our lives. This attachment, tendency to form attachment, which is pretty widespread. The constant, you know, I'm not talking about the not, you know, the these human attachments, which are very important, you know, the attachment of a child to its parent. You know, I'm talking about attachment in a completely different way, understand that. The kind of attachments we form, which leads us to constantly try and arrange our fix and manipulate our mind and life and world in ways that guarantee an outcome of success and safety. Now, the surrender of attachment does not mean the surrender of relatedness. It does not mean the surrender of all the wise and informed choices we're asked to make in our lives. It just is simply the cessation of attachment. It's the cessation of trying to fix the world in place. And we really do see that all of this tendency to do that, all of that attachment, again is rooted in the attachment to self-view. What I need, what I want, what I like, what I don't like. I think the stream enter knows deeply, unshakably, that this life, with all its changing conditions, is without guarantees, and so essentially lives a life free of disappointment. 
knows the liberated heart is not dependent upon conditions or the manipulation of conditions, and so lives with ease. The stream enterers knows how to be in this world without clinging to anything anywhere. Now again, there is a process of both path and fruition. Isn't it true that our life and our practice is constantly inviting us to learn the lessons of letting go? Letting go of attachment, letting go of fixing. And with practice and with experience, that letting go ripens and matures until there is an unshakability within non-clinging. This can sound so impossible, but it is possible. Our path has so many challenges and difficulties, but it is also a path of deepening joy and peace and freedom. We are practicing in that spirit. It's a a wonderful couple of lines I, I truly love. It says, when you hear the stories of the trials and the hardships of the great yogis, teachers, and Buddhas of the past, we think they could do this because they were great yogis and Buddhas. Not so. Simply by acting like great Buddhas and yogis, they became so. To really sense the immediacy of what we're talking about here, the immediacy, It is a path of liberating the moment, one moment at a time. And in training ourselves, in really understanding the happiness and joy of that, that liberating of the moment becomes an unshakable liberation. Again, just to revisit what the Buddha said, that this noble life we live does not have gain, honor, and renown for its benefit or the attainment of virtue for its benefit, or the attainment of concentration for its benefit, or knowledge and vision for its benefit. But it is this unshakable deliverance of mind that is the goal of this noble life, its heartwood and its end. Give just a moment quietly together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.